What I would love to see, though, what excites me, there's an opportunity that emerges out of the crisis that we're in, this pandemic that we're in, and the fact that all of us have been forced to take a number of steps backward and say, how do we create a world that we can live in now? Because that's essentially the question everybody's asking, which is a wonderful question to ask. And I'm hoping that the answer to that question is a world in which we create a greater distribution of the, the wealth that we're able to generate in order to improve the quality of life of people across the board. And for me, that is the most exciting thing that we could possibly do and the most interesting thing that could possibly happen. I've started a new series in OnChange where I speak to some of the amazing people I'm meeting and will most likely continue to meet as part of my executive MBA, which I'm currently doing through the University of Cape Town's Graduate Business School. In this episode, I speak to Sean Lewis, who is a part-time lecturer for the EMBA. He is also a past student of the program. I met Sean at the first course of my EMBA. He was our lecturer in evidence-based management and self-systems methodology. When we started talking, I realized that Sean has lived an interesting and eventful life and that his origin story was one worth sharing. In fact, we spent most of this conversation speaking about his life up until now. Sean has pursued knowledge his entire life. He's a strong, independent thinker who naturally thrives in an environment where he's empowered to achieve organizational and personal development goals. In this conversation, we talk about Sean's story. We grew up in very different worlds, so his story was very important for me to hear. I was blown away by Sean's resilience and ingenuity at finding ways to pursue further study and knowledge. Please join me on this fascinating journey through Sean's life. Have you ever gone through change in your personal life or at work and thought to yourself, there must be a better way to do this? Welcome to On Change, the podcast that explores change that works and the people who make it happen. And now from Solid Gold Studios, here's your host, Pietro Dupisani. Good morning, Sean. How are you doing? Good morning, Pietro. I'm okay. It's Saturday morning. I'm good. Tell me about your story. Where did you grow up? And in what type of world did you experience school, university, your first job? So I was born and raised, I was born in, in, a, in a house in Belgravia estate, which is in Cape Flats, where I lived in a room with my mother and father and my older brother and my little sister. And we shared the house. It was a three-bedroom house. We shared the house with my grandparents. And I think nine of the 11 children lived in that house with their children. So I, I think there were only two of their kids that weren't living in the house. They had 11, my grandparents had 11 kids. There were a lot of us in the house. So that's where I was born in Belgravia Estate in Athlon on the Cape Flats. My mom was a secretary and my dad worked for the municipality. He, he was a rent office clerk. He collected rent. He, so um, he collected rent in, in, in areas where the council was, was letting houses to people. And my dad had actually started working as a laborer for the municipality. He started off by loading tar onto trucks and then he worked his way through to becoming a rent office clerk. Um, we moved from Belgravia to a place called Vanguard Estate, which was an, at the time I was about six years old, I think, and the and, and Vanguard Estate was a new development on the Cape Flats, and it was a new kind of emerging middle class uh, development on the Cape Flats. And my family, my parents, and my brother and sister and I moved to this house, and that's where I spent most of my life growing up. 
I went to school in the Cape Flats. Um, went to a school called Vanguard Primary, and then I went to a school called Athlone High. Athlone High, incidentally, has got a quite a long history. It's um, I, the second oldest school on the Cape Flats. It was a school that educated um, black people from all over Southern Africa. So Athlone High catered for students from Zimbabwe and from Botswana, all over. Um, so Athlone High has got a fairly long pedigree. So in retrospect, when you look at a school like Athlone High, because of apartheid, all students who were classified colored to go to colored schools, which meant that you had wealthy kids going, or relatively wealthy kids, kids that are fairly well off, middle class, your emerging middle class, your upper middle class people going to one school, but also working class kids in the same school. And you kind of had a hodgepodge of, of class relations that blended into each other in a single school uniform. So there was a fairly rich educational experience beyond the classroom. And I think in many ways that rich educational experience that I had doesn't exist quite in the same way anymore because now, today, people tend to go to schools that suit their economic class. So you have poor schools, poor kids go to poor, relatively poor schools and Wealthy kids go to relatively wealthy schools. So you don't have that lovely mix of the classes and um, that, that rich educational educational experience outside beyond the classroom. So I think it's a, and I'm not nostalgically looking back at apartheid as a as a wonder as as a catalyst for a rich educational experience, but it is something that has impacted on the way that schools are structured. So we have a massive disparity between schools that are well-resourced in schools that are under-resourced. Um, and it's a disparity that reflects a general disparity in the country. But I digress. Um, we were still talking about me. I was the first in my family. My family my, fa- my family is not wealthy by any means. My, my family is a working-class family that moves from Paul, in the, also in the Western Cape. Just before my brother was born, my brother was two years older than I, uh, I am. So my family moved from Paul in the Western Cape, which is a semi-rural kind of a, a town in the Wildlands. And they moved from there to the city, obviously to improve their job prospects, their earning prospects. So I still have connections to Paul, although they're not as strong as they were when I was a kid. And um, in my family, we didn't, we there was no tradition of of studying beyond high school. None of my members of my family, nobody before me, had gone to a university. That's my entire extended family, my mother's side, my father's side. Nobody had gone to a university before. My brother, who was two years older than me, applied to the University of Western Cape, and he was accepted, and he would have gone to the University of Western Cape two years before me. But he got killed in a motorcycle accident when he was 18, just after he finished writing matric. Um, So he didn't get the opportunity beyond that. So I ended up being the first kid in the family to go to a university, which was kind of kind of an alien in alien environment. We knew nothing about universities. We just heard that universities are something that children should aspire to. And my parents worked very hard to ensure that they could give me and my sister the best possible opportunities that we could grab hold of. So, yeah, so I'm very grateful to my parents for that. And what did you study? I started off studying, I started off with a BA, majoring in English. Um, So I had choices. I'm a student that has the ability to do science and arts. So I was equally good at physics and maths as I was at English and Latin. So I had choices. And and I know that I I was in in the company of um, 
of, of my fellow students at high school. I had friends who wanted to become engineers and doctors and lawyers. And I just thought that just seemed like too much hard work. Because, it, and really, it's, um, it, it really, I made my decision on what to study based on a couple of things. One was that it made no sense to me that you would go to a university and take on a very, very difficult course of study and work extremely hard to graduate to only continue to work hard thereafter. And everything that they chose seemed like hard work, you know, like hard work during university times and hard work afterwards, you know, medicine, engineering. So so there, there are a couple of things that influenced my decision. So the one was the fact that I didn't think that I, uh, that working hard made sense. It didn't make sense to me. The other was that I had a, I thought education and teaching was very important. I thought the, uh, that working within education was very important and I wanted to become a teacher. It might it, uh, it might be that the um, it might be that my socialization made me brought me to the conclusion that I needed to become a teacher because I there weren't many options for people of color in when I was a kid matriculating from high school so and teacher was really um, a, a a highly respected position within the colored community in the Western Cape at the time so I wanted to become a teacher. I also had a passion for language, for, for language and literature. I loved language and literature. I loved reading. Um, I, I enjoyed the, I enjoyed the playing with language. I mean, language was kind of my thing. I loved that. So I combined, I think, my, my disinterest in, in, in working extremely hard and a passion for language and literature and became an English teacher and studied English as my major. I actually started off start with English and drama as my majors at I, majors at UCT. I did not continue with drama beyond first year. In fact, um, the, I guess I think drama. I chose drama not because it, well I did love drama and I loved theatre, but I didn't choose drama because I wanted to study drama. To study at UCT, you needed what you needed a permit back in those days. You needed a permit to study at UCT, and um, drama, and we because if you were coloured, you were supposed to go to a university for um, for for people for coloured people, and the university for coloured people in the Western Cape was the University of the Western Cape. So I I was required to go there unless I could prove that the course that I wanted to a course that I wanted to take was not offered at the University of Western Cape, and that was drama. So I took drama. And um, and and failed it three times. I failed it in year one, year two, and year three, um, and still graduated because I carried drama. I just did drama one. I didn't attend classes. Um, I didn't attend classes. I wrote exams. Um, some exams I passed. Some exams I failed. I submitted papers. Um, I had fun writing papers that I knew nothing about. But yeah, I worked out the number of courses that I needed to study that I needed. In, needed to graduate in three years because you did a BA degree. So I just carried drama as an extra course every year um, so that I could graduate after three years. And I graduated, did a teacher's diploma, higher diploma in education, and then taught for about three and a half years in Cape Town. So you were a teacher for three years. Then what happened after that? So I became a teacher and I graduated in 1984 as a teacher. 
with a degree and a teacher's diploma. Went to teach in 1985 for the first time, but the the 80s were um, tumultuous years in the in in South Africa with large scale protests and against apartheid. The, the schools were kind of a hot spot for of protest um, in the 80s, and a lot of organisation went around schools. So I got very involved as a community activist uh, while I was studying. But I got even more involved as a as an educational activist when I started teaching. In 1986, teachers on the Western Cape felt that a couple of things. One, that we needed to take a stand against the against apartheid and the iniquities of apartheid, and we needed a a solid organization. We need a we needed a united front of some sort that enabled us to take a united stand. And we did not believe that the teacher organizations that existed at the time were sufficiently progressive to accommodate our demands. So in 1986, we started a process of creating a teachers' union in the Western Cape, and that teachers' union was called the Western Cape Teachers' Union. So I was intimately involved in that process in the establishment of of the Western Cape Teachers' Union, or WEC2 as it became known. So I served on the, the interim executive committee, that led to the founding of WEC2 in 1987. I performed the function of, I performed two functions. One is as an organizer in the Athlone area, which is where I lived and taught. And the other was as the treasurer of the interim committee, which I did. And I did a terrible job of being a treasurer. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm great with numbers. I can count, but I'm terrible at accounting. I'm absolutely terrible at accounting and nobody should ever appoint me as a treasurer of an organization. It is something I learned in that period. But anyway, so, um, I became involved with, 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 I, I got, in, I was very involved with the formation of WEC2. Incidentally, WEC2 is the Western Cape predecessor to SATU, which is your South African Democratic Teachers Union. But, and, and as part of that, and, and, but there was also lots of protests and stuff in the Western Cape, um, in, nationally actually. But in the Western Cape at the school at which I taught, um, in 1986, the, um, Department of Colored Affairs, I can't remember what they were called in 1986 anymore, but essentially the Department of Colored Affairs banned me from teaching. Um, so they were not just me alone. At my school, there were three people who were banned, um, and, and, and we, we weren't banned from teaching. We were just banned from being on the premises of schools within the borders of the Republic of South Africa. So the banning, uh, so, they, so we got a banning order served on us, which meant that, so we weren't banned from teaching, we just couldn't go to school. And uh, so, so in somewhere around, I think it was three months before the end of the year, so the last three months of the, before the end of the year, I was banned in, I think it would have been about September, October um, 1986. It was an attempt to undermine, on the one hand, the, for, the, 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 the emerging organization of teachers, and on the other hand, to, to take away the, that alliance between teachers and students, because teachers and students had active relationships um, around political struggle back in those days. Um, and, and so it was an attempt to identify it was an attempt by the state to identify people who they considered to be agitators of unrest at the schools and to neutralize them so um so so that 
So that happened in 1986, and in 1987, early 1987, and it wasn't just at my school. It was at a number of schools in the Western. There weren't many. I think there were about 20 or so people banned across the Western Cape. Maybe not even that many, but they were banned from school. So the 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 so in in the next year, the students at the schools refused to go back to classes until their teachers were reinstated. So after the year started and and um, eventually the we were allowed to we were reinstated. We were allowed to return to schools, and um, yeah, and so in, we start. I started teaching again. I think in about February. 1997 but I didn't stay for very long because yeah I didn't stay for very long because the that that period that period of my banning it's it was challenging for me because now one moment I had a job and an income and I was living on my own and the next moment I didn't have a job and an income and I could no longer afford rent and I couldn't afford to keep my car sold my car and moved back in with my parents and then had to had a little bit of time to think about what do I do next um, because you know so at the start of the process I didn't know what I was going to do I didn't know that I would be reinstated the next year I didn't I had no knowledge so I had to think of how I would sustain myself from that point forth so I had to so yeah that so that started the next phase in my life yeah, see, see I'm, I'm interested in the journey that you made all the way from growing up to where I met you at the beginning of the year as an EMBA lecturer. So all of those sort of hinge moments where you changed direction and eventually ended up right here in this position where you are a lecturer at UCT. Okay, so that obviously was a very important hinge moment um, being banned then. So in that, in that period, I serendipitously came across a, a, um, an advertisement for black students in South Africa to apply for scholarships to study in the US. Um, and, and given that I had, um, given that I didn't have a, I, I had no job and I had no prospects of getting a job. Because, and I don't know if you know this, but if you have a BA degree majoring in English literature, um, you're not very employable. Um, so people look at you as you're either underqualified for most things that require a, a competence of some sort, or you're overqualified because you have a degree and you can't do entry level work. You know, so you're either underqualified or overqualified, but you're certainly not qualified to do anything but teach English. So, um, so after trying to find another job, um, I came across this ad and I applied for to to study. And I spoke to my dad and I remember my dad saying to me that my dad say my dad said to me that I should go and study computers. This is nineteen eighty six and um I knew nothing about computers. Um so I applied to do a bachelor's degree a bachelor of science in computer science i applied to do get it for a scholarship to do a to study for a bsc in computer science in the u.s and then and went through the process of the application process and then you had to write the um the 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 what's it the sats the scholastic aptitude test and um so i wrote the the sats and um and then and and i wrote the sats which i encountered for the first time and then I the, and the, the problem believe it or not an interesting problem was that my score was too high 
So I scored in the 97th or 98th percentile. Um, and I don't know if, so what that basically means is that 97, 98 people, 97, 98% of the people who wrote the test in that year scored below me. So because my score was in the 97th or 98th percentile and I had a degree already, um, the, 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 the scholarship providers came back to me and said they cannot accept me for a scholarship to do a bachelor of science degree, a bachelor's degree, because my, my scores were too high and um, I already had a degree, but they would offer me a place if I was prepared to do a master's degree. So um, I said, I, I had nothing else to do, so I said, okay. And so I had to write the uh, something. GMAT probably. I, pro I had to write something. Some other graduate, no, G graduate record exam, GREs. I had to write the GRE, uh, which is the graduate record examination. And I don't remember what score I got there because there were no issues with my score. I was accepted, got into a university and got accepted to do a, to study for a master's in computer science at the State University of New York at Albany. Um, Bear in mind that at that point I had no knowledge of computing, none whatsoever. So, um, so I accepted the scholarship. They made the scholarship offer. I accepted the scholarship, and um, and and treat. But I accepted the scholarship, and in the back of my head, I was thinking, there is no way I can do a master of science in 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 computer science. I just don't have the knowledge or the skills. But I'm going to accept the scholarship, and if I fail in the first quarter and they send me home, I would at least have had a three-month holiday in the U.S. So that was kind of the basis of my acceptance. I really did not think that I would succeed. I, I really, I really firmly believed that I would be sent home within three months. But I accepted the scholarship because it was an adventure, and um, up to that point, I had never been on a plane. So uh, it was 1987. I was 25 years old. I've never been on a plane. So for me, this was a completely new adventure, and I was going to have fun with it. So my plan was to have fun with it. My friends who got the scholarship with me, and who, so there were lots of, um, there was an induction, there was an induction process. So we had to go to seminars and stuff in, 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 in places in the Western Cape where they told us about Americans and American culture, etc. I never went. I did not go once to this induction. I didn't take it seriously enough um, because I didn't think I would survive. I didn't think I would last. And my mom was so concerned about it. My mom went in my stead. My friends always remind me that um, I was the only student whose mom came to these induction sessions instead of him. So my mom went to these induction sessions and eventually, around about July, July 1987, um, I boarded a plane with 97 other South Africans um, from all over the country. So they picked up a bunch of people in Joburg and then they landed in Cape Town and they picked up a bunch of South Africans in Cape Town. And we, so there were about 98 of us on the plane and we flew to, we flew via Varig Airlines to Buenos Aires and from Buenos Aires we flew to Newark, New Jersey. It was an absolute blast. Because the most of us had never been on a plane before, and we'd never had that experience of people serving us food on a plane and serving us. And and Varig Airlines served copious amounts of alcohol. I mean, copious. I mean, they would 
pour shots of they wouldn't wouldn't pour shots of whiskey. They would pour like glasses of whiskey and an entire tumbler full of whiskey. So the I don't drink, so I stayed sober for the entire trip. But I can tell you, there was a bunch of South Africans who arrived very, 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 very drunk in Buenos Aires. Um, and it was the first time for us all flying. And then we flew to New York, New Jersey, and then we flew from there to Columbus, Ohio, where we had another induction, a two or three week induction to American culture and American universities, etc. And we bonded as a group, as a group of students. And yeah, a group of South African, black South African students in the US, because that's essentially what we were. Um, and the idea behind the program, I think, was to start developing that black middle class. There was a conscious, I think there was a conscious um, decision in the West um, that that in order to ensure the, st the stability of South Africa in the future, they needed to develop that buffer middle class, that black buffer middle class that did not exist in South Africa at the time. So there was a conscious decision to develop that black middle class, and which is what we were part of, and to ensure that the um, that we had educated people, that to build up a cohort of educated people that could assume um, positions of authority and influence in a future South Africa. Of course, we didn't know any. Uh, we we didn't necessarily know all of this at the time, but I think that was the the rationale for the program. Um, and then, so we spent a few weeks there and, um, and we then dispersed from Columbus, Ohio. We dispersed to our separate campuses. I went to SUNY Albany, um, which is upstate New York. And I spent two years there studying and in SUNY Albany. So, so one of the things that we did as South Africans is, so the, one of the things that we realized when we got there is that. In addition to the 98 of us, there was a large number of South Africans at universities dotted across the United States. Um, so what we did at that point is we tried to pull together, and I think it was the end of that year, we we got together somewhere in Texas. Um, we we it tried to connect with all the South Africans we could find um in the US and got together somewhere in Texas as at some point and we created an SRC of South African students. So which where I and I served on that SRC of South African students in the US. Um I served on on the executive at in my at a, at a specific portfolio for communications. Um and out of and and uh, which uh, which I, at the point that at the time I didn't realize how important it was because given that we were dispersed across the entire United States, the the one thing that kept the connection alive, that kept the organization alive, was the communications. So I published a monthly newsletter. I think I, that's a monthly newsletter for the two years that I was in the U.S. I published a monthly newsletter and distributed it electronically to all students, all Black South African students in the U.S. And we arranged a conference. We had two conferences. We arranged conferences on an annual basis in the U.S. Um, so that we could get together. And and we had people, we had participation from the ANC and from the PAC in exile um, in those conferences. So we built up very strong relationships in we, with with the ANC and the PAC in exile, even from the time that we got to Columbus, Ohio. So what happened with 
your three-month holiday and coming back after three months. <laughs> that didn't happen. <laughs> no, I actually ended up staying there. So in the first in the first quarter, the the first semester at at the at the US University, I had to do a few bridging courses because I obviously had, I mean I studied English literature at UCT, so I had to do a few bridging courses in in calculus and Boolean logic and bunch of other stuff. Um, I, I don't even remember what it was, but I remember studying calculus in, in, in semester one. And I remember doing doing logical logical calculus, which is uh, the study of Boolean logic, which was the most boring, the most boring subject I had ever, ever, ever done in my life. I could not stay awake in a single lecture. It was absolutely, absolutely boring. And after going to that class day in, day out, it was the first class in the morning. It was like eight o'clock in the morning. My, and I'm a morning person. I'm wide awake. I'm full of energy in the mornings generally. I could not handle that class. I could not stay away. And after, after sitting in that class for a week, for, for months on end, I eventually decided that I cannot continue with this course of study. I can't, I can't. It was, for me, it was like watching paint dry. So I went to the university and I said I need to change my program from a master's in computer science to a master of science in technology, master of ed- master of science in education specializing in technology. So I stayed within the broad parameters of computers, but I switched the focus from a master of science in computer science to a master of science in education with a specialization in technology. So from semester two onwards, from January 1988 onwards, I had switched my course to something else. And that was a degree that was way more, much more significantly more suited to my interests, my passions, my personality. And that's what I graduated with in 1989. And then? Came home with a degree of, I, it's a hell of a degree, Master of Science in Education with a specialization in technology, which meant that I learned a lot about computers. I learned to write computer programs, etc. But I also did computers within the technology within the context of education. I came home to South Africa in April 1989 and um, after graduating and and um, looked for work and there was no work for me because there's no there was no place for the nobody there was nobody in the, nobody else that had this kind of weird degree and there was no place for me so I ended up I ended up at UCT. I ended up at UCT working as a the uh, my my official job title was programmer, and I did a little bit of programming. I did a little bit of programming, so I I had to. But I also did a lot of user support. So back in the back in those days, and remember this is 1989. There there wasn't that massive specialization in the computer industry as there is now. So I was employed as a programmer, which meant that I had to be able to read and write software, which I could. But I also had to provide user support. So if you've got a desktop that is not working, if you need, I provided training on, on stuff like Word. So I taught classes on how to use Word and how to use Excel and how to use WordPerfect. So I taught classes back in those days. So that was my job, right? And and that was my job. And we also ran a little help desk. So as part of being a programmer, you had to take a turn. So you had half a day a week where you were the help desk person. So we had one person on the help desk, and it was we rotated amongst the the pro the, the programmers would take one day in which we 
would sit on the phone and answer all questions and then follow up afterwards. So that was the nature of my job. And of course, I continued to work. I shifted my, my community activism to sport because I was, a, I was also very passionate about sports. And I was, even before I went, left the first time, I, I was president of Western Province Volleyball Association. So I became president of Western Province Volleyball somewhere in the mid 80s, 86, 85, 86 or something. And so when I came back in 89, I continued. They brought me back onto the executive as the vice president of Western Province Volleyball. And I, became, and I was actively involved in, in managing volleyball. So I was actively involved as a player as a coach and as an administrator of volleyball. As, as an administrator, at some point when we were starting to look at, to, as we were heading towards, as we were heading towards 1992, and there was a lot of talk about us actually breaking down the barriers, the, the, the racially defined barriers of sport, because back in those days, you will remember that we used to have white sports and colored sports and black sports. And you know, so we, so so, and and I, when I say sports, I mean sports organizations. One of the things that we needed to do was to start breaking down those barriers. And within the volleyball fraternity, um, we then had three organizations. Um, we had um, we had three organizations, and I was served on the national executive of one of the three. And what we had to do was to then we started having talks about unification. And I became involved in the talk. So we, we, each of the, the national executives elected, selected three people that would represent each organization. So there was this group of nine people that got together periodically to start hammering out how we would actually unify. It was quite a contentious. It was quite, uh, there was a lot of, there was a lot, a lot of conflict. There was a lot of conflict in the process. Because people obviously felt very strongly about things, and and at in that point, at that point, so I think I matured quite a bit through the process. Because in that process, I realized that I have, I realized a couple of things about myself. One, that I have the ability to listen very carefully, which um, I didn't know that I had. I probably had it, but I didn't realize it quite to the same extent. So I was able to listen very carefully, and I was able to find commonality. When this within the conflict, so so even though there were the many conflicting ideas that were being that we were arguing about, and there was lots of passion and emotion. I discovered then that I had the ability to 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 transcend and move beyond the passion and the emotion and find the commonalities. So, and I remember writing a document after the first session, and uh, in which we argued furiously for two days i remember sitting down and writing a document in which i define which i i think we called it the basis for unity i think i and and remember this is or still the pre-computer days we didn't really have ubiquitous computers so this was written by hand on yellow paper i'll never forget any of those yellow exam pads and i probably still have it somewhere I wrote a document called the basis for unity so that when the we met a, the next time we could actually debate that basis for unity and we could then agree on some principles which was were agreed and then we could then start building forward from there and um, so this process lasted for probably about two years I mean this process lasted for from around about 1992 up until 
um, and beyond the time that I left, but I left the country again. No, not 1992. From about 1990 up until about 1992, because I left the country again in 92, in February 92. But that's a different story. So this process happened for those few years, and we got to a point. We got to a point where we were now ready to form a unified organization, which eventually emerged called Volleyball South Africa. And because of my conciliatory stance, I was relatively I had a conciliatory stance. Because of my conciliatory stance and my ability to see, to find commonality, um, I was um, the, the it was my 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 the negotiating partners felt that I was positioned correctly to become a the president of a new federation. But I was also in love with an American woman who I had met in my first two years in the U.S. I had fallen in love with this woman and at, at SUNY Albany. And we managed to, we had a relationship for, we had a relationship that started in 1998, 1988, and went all the way through. So even though I came home in 1989, we continued our relationship until in 1990 she came to South Africa and lived with me for about lived with me for about eight or nine months before returning home to the U.S. and but the relationship continued by a long distance and eventually by February 1994 I decided that if we were going to make give this relationship a go um, we needed to be in the same country at the same time. So in 1994, February 94, I packed up everything, sold everything, and went to the U.S. to to um, continue to build this relationship, to get married, actually. And that didn't happen. Um, that didn't happen because I, I, I think the the import, the, the gravity of that decision um, at the time was, I think, too much for this woman that I was in love with. So she, so, so, and while she agreed with everything, once I was there in New York, so once I was there in New York, um, it was, I think the, the, the gravity was just too much for, and she was just struggled to commit to the relationship. I was, of course, fully committed because I had sold my house, sold my car, sold my motorbike, sold my hi-fi system. And I had arrived in the U.S. with my mother in tow because my mother wanted to be there when we got married. And um, and then, so we were together for about three weeks before I walked out of the relationship and said that, and walked out of the relationship um in in tears actually one night in february in tears in this it was cold it was snowing and the snow was on the ground and i walked out with my i had this like army bag with my clothes in it stuffed in there and walked out into the darkness and went to go and look for a place that i could stay and i had some friends staying in manhattan um and i went to crash on the um futon in the in their spare room, and I stayed there for this, a couple of months. Is this now with your with your mother? No, she I left. And, no, I left my mother. My <laughs> my mother was staying. My mother actually stayed with my ex girlfriend's uh, at my. So we were living in my ex girlfriend's mother's house. My ex girlfriend's. So we so we had moved to their house, and there. So my mother stayed there, and I left without my mother. 
my mother my mother eventually came home um and i stayed there so i was miserable i mean i was i was like devastated i was miserable and um i was absolutely absolutely devastated and so the 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 only way so and and i i find i and i realized also that i find solace in in learning um so i i then decided that because now my my entire life my all my life plans had been had been had been uh, were aborted and um i had no life plan so um i worked illegally in in new york city i did some writing and editing um in new york city for about two or three months to earn an income and just stay alive while crashing on my friends um futon south african friends and then i and then I, I i decided that what i want to do is okay i want to study i want to study again the only way the way something that would make me happy would be studying so i went to new york library new york city's library and they had these new york city's library at that stage at that stage pre-internet pre-ubiquitous internet they had these massive books i think it's called the Peterson's Guide to Universities. So there are a number of volumes of this Peterson's Guide to Universities. It's like an encyclopedia of universities and the programs that they offer. So I studied these Peterson's Guides. I spent days in the library studying these Peterson's Guides and identified. I thought about what I wanted to study and I was interested in language because um, I was very interested in language because I thought uh, I looked at South Africa and I said in South Africa we need to have an understanding of how we bridge this language gap because in addition to I mean we've had all of these di- various dimensions of poverty and social class and um, quality of life etc the area of in my area my particular area of interest where I the, the factor that I thought could impact on 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 all of those things is language so one of the factors and i'm not saying it's a definitive factor but i wanted to understand language so i looked at i looked for universities that offered language programs up the so i looked language programs but applied linguistics programs so i looked specifically for applied linguistics programs up to up to doctorate level because at that stage i didn't know what i wanted to do but I had this idea that the, the a sensible, logical choice would be to try and do a PhD in applied linguistics. Um, so that's what I looked for. And I find, uh, found 124 universities in the, West, in the U.S. that offered a doctoral program in applied linguistics. So I wrote a letter I, I sat down and I wrote a letter to all 124 universities saying a couple of things. One, I'm a South African, South African um, in the U.S. I don't have a visa. I don't have money. But I'd like to study at, a new, at your university and I need you to fund my studies. Um, so, and, I, and, and I sent it to 124 universities and I got 19 responses. 17 of which were negative um, but there were two positives the, uni- the the university of pittsburgh and the university of delaware so i looked at these two responses um and 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 decided that i that i needed to that i decided that i i'm gonna, that i would go to the university of pittsburgh i don't remember why 
But I know I decided on Pittsburgh and I decided that I needed to make uh, because the University of Pittsburgh said that they would consider my application. So both Delaware and neither of them committed to giving me an offer, but they both said, neither of them said no. So I decided that I needed to go and make a compelling case um, to the University of Pittsburgh. So at that point, I was living in Albany again. So I'd moved from New York City and I was living in Albany because I was no longer working and I needed to find a place where I could live for free. So I went to live with my good friend in, in, in Albany, um, my home away from home. And um, so I then got on a Greyhound bus and went to Pittsburgh and went to talk to all of the people and all of the major faculty members at the in the linguistics department introduced myself and said, hi, I'm Sean, I'm the guy who wrote that letter. And um, because I wanted them to see me and hear me, because then it would make it more difficult for them to say no. So I was, so they then made me an offer and um, they made me an offer of a place in the, in their master's program for applied linguistics and a, and a position as a computer support person. They would pay me a stipend if I could provide computer support to the department. Um, so they would pay me a stipend. They would do, give me a tuition waiver, first of all, which means I didn't pay st school student fees. And they'd pay me a stipend so that I could afford to live. And, and, um, and so that, that was it. So that was the deal. So from there, I, I, from there I then went. So in, in about August, August 1992, I then left. I then left um, Albany and went to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I and went to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, found myself an apartment, a tiny little apartment, and used all the remaining money that I had left. Um, and I, I used all the remaining money that I had left to pay my rent up front, so pay for three months of rent, and to buy a massive bag of rice. And the reason was very simple. Um, in order to, so while I was accepted at the university and could start taking classes with a tuition waiver, I could not get paid until I had a visa. So I had applied, I, of course, I could only apply for the visa once I was accepted at the university. But the process of getting a visa took time. So when I went to Pittsburgh in Albany in, in August, I did not have a visa and I had no income. And I had no spare money. So I used, I made sure that I had a place to live. And I made sure that I had something to eat. And that something to eat was rice. Because rice was cheap and it could, you could just keep rice. You take, uh, take a little bit of rice and you boil it and it becomes a lot more. So I lived on rice for about seven weeks. I lived on rice only for about seven weeks because I had no more money. And what I did with, in order to, so I would prepare rice every day for breakfast, lunch and supper. And um, what I did was I discovered that there were shops. So there were little shops that sold um, vegetables and stuff. So green grocers, a little Italian shop close to my house. And at night they would take the, the, the vegetables that were starting to rot and put them put it outside the shop. They would close the shop and put the vegetables outside. So I would go and pick up the vegetables every night and take them home, cut away the rotting bits, and then I would prepare a meal of rice with vegetables. And that's how I lived for about seven weeks until my visa came through and I could get paid and I could live like a human. 
not just eat rice with 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 rotting vegetables. Then I and I, then I did two years at the at at the University of Pittsburgh. I also realized then that it's challenging for a lot of African students studying at universities in the U.S. Not necessarily for the same reasons that it was challenging for me. We African students also had like emotional challenges. You know, they're away from home and um, lonely. Alcoholism was a problem. Drugs were a problem. Um, harassment of women were a problem. So one of the things I did in in the in in Pittsburgh was to I established I founded the the African Students Association in Pittsburgh, where we and basically what I wanted to do was to provide a community of Africans in Pittsburgh that could welcome Africans whenever they arrived in the in the in Pittsburgh and make them and give them an induction, give them a family, somebody that they could speak to, somebody that they could relate to. So that they didn't have to go down the roads, the the the, the negative, the damage, the negative roads that they were going. I also wanted to make sure that when anybody speaks for Africans in Pittsburgh, that it's Africans speaking for Africans. I didn't like the idea of having Americans speak for us, as though we could not speak for ourselves. So I I founded the African Students Organization, which by the way still exists. Eh? Still existed in in the at the University of Pittsburgh. It was actually an organization that straddled the University of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon University, which was also close by. So yeah, and then graduated two years later and came home. How did you end up lecturing in the EMBA program at UCT? Okay, so I I it was not my first lecturing stint. So my first lecturing stint was after ninety and nineteen ninety four after returning to South Africa. I lectured in the English department at the University of Western Cape. I taught English language and literature at the University of Western Cape, which so I returned to my original passions and interests, except at university level. The but then um, for then then I I also served on the academic staff association. So and then and we got into a little bit of conflict as the spokesperson. Got into a little bit of conflict with the with the rector at the time. And I decided at some point, after about three years of lecturing, I decided that I wanted that 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 South Africans needed South African education needed um, corporate skills, that we needed to have a better understanding of how to manage education by learning how corporates manage organizations, companies, because corporates manage companies with you know, they they manage bottom line they manage profitability they manage efficiencies in order to to ensure profitability and sustainability and i didn't believe that education was being managed that well so i wanted to understand how the world outside of academia works so i left the university and this and went into um, the private sector as a public relations consultant um, for a company and then went from there from public relations, I'll do a quick whistle-stop tour, but I did public relations for about a year and then decided to then, um, but I was, I had, by that time I'd gotten married and public relations was a, an interesting discipline, fascinating discipline, but um, it demanded time outside of office hours, which didn't work well for a newly married man. So I decided to return to something that was a little more structured around office times. And I then went to work as a, an IT project manager. So I left public relations to work as an IT project manager, which I did for a while and then just stayed in the IT. Then, and that was kind of my return to IT. 
and since then I've stayed in IT in various roles, um, leveraging both my IT knowledge, I guess my ability to have a discourse in IT, to engage in discourse in IT with an understanding of the terminology, but also leveraging my communication my communication skills because I, I because I so so I ended up. I've always ended up in IT doing both. And it's a combination of communication skills and and, um, and and IT technical knowledge, which is where I still am. Um, of course, it's been augmented by other things, but it's essentially what I do. It's a combination of IT discourse and, and educate communication skills. But working in IT, and I went through a couple of companies. I worked at Vodacom, at MWeb for a while, for a couple of years, and then I ended up at Vodacom, got recruited, ended up at Vodacom and I'm still at Vodacom in an IT role but I was dissatisfied with just being in an IT role because I I, I felt like I wasn't doing enough well I felt that I, I'm not being challenged enough I'm performing an, a, a largely operational function a technical operational function when I think that my value proposition my personal value proposition exceeds that of just techno, technology and operations I'm I think that I can. I add a lot of strategic value. Um, I add a lot of creative value that um, that are, that's that's not necessarily being tapped in a in a um, in an IT environment. And I wasn't being stretched. I was. Uh, I, I think I was. I was always almost working in my sleep for many years. So I wanted to, a new challenge, which is why I then decided that the a new challenge would might be. Let me try and understand. I wanted. I left academia in order to understand how business worked so i'm now in the inside a business but let me try and understand business academically and theoretically so that's why i ended up i decided to do an mba at uct and um and eventually ended up in the executive mba program through a somewhat circuitous journey but i eventually ended up in the executive mba program and then um and while in the program, there were some things that I didn't like in the program. There were some things that I didn't enjoy, something I didn't think were taught very well. Um, so I mentioned that to Kashik and I said, I would love to have a chance. While I was still in the program, I said, I would love to have an opportunity to teach, um, to teach, I can't remember what it was, but to teach this because I don't think it's being done very well. Um, and, and, um, then I think two years after I graduated, I had a conversation with Kushik and we this and and I said I would still enjoy teaching. Um, and he said, "Why don't you come and teach and and um, why don't you start come and teach on the in module one?" And um, and I said, "Okay." And at that point, I actually didn't. I thought he I, I thought he was asking me to come in as a guest lecturer. That I wouldn't even get paid for it, and I was very happy to do this and not get paid for it. I I actually did not know that he was offering me a job. I thought he was just saying, come in and have a chat. And um, so the first time I taught on the on the course, I really didn't know I was going to get paid. I found that out afterwards, and I'm very happy that I'm getting paid. Since then, I've become like part of the, the executive MBA program. So I was looking at your um, LinkedIn profile, and it said there, I have a executive MBA, cum laude, and you were the class president. So I, my question to you is, what do you need to do to get your degree cum laude? I, I think a lot of people listening would like to know that. Sure. Okay. Um, is it all in the thesis at the end? 
a lot of it was in the thesis. Look, I did consistently well from the beginning. So it's uh, so I did very well in module module one. I did very well in module two. In module three, I didn't do as well, and I got cocky. I, I I'll tell you honestly that I'm I'm so I've always been an above average student. I mean that, that's I I've always been in a, one of the top students. I've never been the top student. Never been the best, but I've always been amongst the best. And I find studying easy. I love studying and I find studying easy. And I find acquiring new knowledge and making the knowledge my own, I find that easy. I Easy and enjoyable, which is wonderful if you love studying. But in the first year of the executive MBA, module one was bewildering. I mean, I didn't know. I, I, I had no idea of who I was, where I was, and what all of these things meant. But in spite of that, I did very well on my position with my position paper. And module two was also bewildering, less so than module one, because the discourse had been established. But I also did very well. So I got cocky. And in module three, I did very little work. I think I wrote my position paper in one day. I think I, I, think I started my position paper the morning. It was due the Friday. I started writing that paper the morning. And that's writing and the, doing the research. And I created that entire paper and I submitted it on time by 11 o'clock that night. And I got an average mark for it. And, and I hate average marks, but it's just by the way. I'm, so I, I, so, and, and, and I looked, I reflected on, on, on module three. I reflected very seriously on module three and I realized one, that I got cocky and two, I'm taking learning for granted. I'm taking, absolutely taking learning for granted. I'm not embracing the, 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 the opportunity to learn new things and really, really, um, immerse myself in learning. So from that point forth, I completely immersed myself in the learning. I mean, that for me was the most, that for me was the big eye opener, the major turning point. And when I, so, so from that point forth, I worked extremely hard. I worked hard and I worked consistently and I put my, I put my, my soul into what I was doing. I wasn't just trying to get marks. I actually didn't care about the marks. I just, I, I really just cared about whether or not I would be happy with what I produced at the end. And, um, so yeah, that's, that's it. So you, you teach um, evidence-based management and systems thinking. Um, so why those, those topics? I, I don't think I, I specifically chose evidence-based management and systems, think, and systems thinking. I think, I think Kashyyyk chose evidence-based management and systems thinking for me. So if I had to choose, if I, if I had had the option of choosing at, the, at that point, I would probably have looked at um, integrated thinking because uh, I love the work of Roger Martin, I would probably have wanted to teach that rather than than evidence-based management and systems thinking. But it, I didn't feel strongly enough about it that I would want to motivate for for it. And um, so I was very happy to teach anything as long as I could teach again and not just spend my time doing corporate stuff that I do every day. Because the teaching actually makes me feel like I'm adding value to the world in some way, in, in ways that doing corporate stuff just don't. I mean, I can, I can definitely say that you know, I was absolutely amazed after course one, the amount of time that you spent with us. I mean, you made Sunday mornings available and Tuesday evenings. And so the question I'm asking is, how do you balance your corporate 
life with all of the high level of attention and detail you give to your teaching? Over time, I've built a Chinese wall between my corporate life and my uh, my extramural work. So what I do is, but in the in the time that I work, with, and I start work at about seven or seven thirty in the morning, and I'll work till about five, and I completely immerse myself in that. So I and I will not touch any academic stuff, anything relating to UCT GSB in that time. I, I separated my computer, so I got a computer. So at once, the, initially when I started, I had one mailbox, and people would mail all my mail would come into one mailbox. And then over time, I realized that that is that's the, that's the the trap, is that I get caught up in the stuff in responding to mail. So I separated the two, and I created a separate existence for my corporate life. So I have two computers right next to each other on my desk. The computer I'm talking to you right now on, uh, is my personal computer. Um, it has no work-related stuff on it, no Vodacom work-related stuff, and all my UCT things are on this computer. And all my personal, my personal life is on this computer. I have a different cloud space for my personal life from the cloud space that I have for my corporate life. I complete Chinese wall, and I work on my um, UCT, my UCT, my academic stuff. I work on after hours, so I won't start before five, and I work on weekends. Um, so I'll do a Saturday and a Sunday. I'll do evenings from about six o'clock onwards. Um, I spent last night. I last night I probably spent about two or three hours um, responding to students and 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 putting together some thoughts on on conceptual frameworks, um, on what is a conceptual framework and how do you construct a conceptual framework. So I put that together last night, but that's what I would do. I would Chinese wall. I do the same. I've got a work computer which was issued to me by work, and that only has work stuff on it. And then I have my own computer which is all my studying and that sort of stuff, and that helps to keep it separate. Another question is: Does your lecturing and studying influence the way in which you do your work? Absolutely. The the. So my life, I only have one life. Even though I have this Chinese wall between my academic life and my work life, my um, my 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 systems thinking enriches my corporate life significantly. The understanding of VSM and the um, and the organizational imperatives around VSM uh, assist me in understanding how to manage the 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 within the organization that I have. Um, when I, now, when we're confronted with the challenges of 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 um, the 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 fourth industrial revolution, the COVID nineteen pandemic, the work from home, the concept of a new way of work, the framework that I will go back to to try and ground my creativity would be something like VSM, which basically says if you if you're thinking about how we're going to how we're going to be create a sustainable and viable organization going forward, given all of the, all of the, the 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 change contextual variables or environmental variables. How would we do that? So I will. So I, so I've got. I've set myself a task of of re of redesigning my organizational structure, um, not just for me, but for my organizational structure, for myself and for my colleagues, because I'm not sure that they're thinking in exactly the same way. So I will, in my personal, in my time, I'll try and knock together something, because at some point I know. In the next two, three, four weeks or months, somebody's going to say, so 
what should we, what should we look like? Because up until now we've been surviving. You know, we 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 had the the the, the pandemic, and we had a lockdown, and we needed to create a survival strategy. So we've got a survival strategy, but do we have a a strategy a strategy that takes us to the next three years or the next five years? And I don't think we do. So we need to think about what takes us to the next three to five years organizationally within the context of the world that we're living in. And I haven't answered that question for myself, but it's certainly a question that I'm asking myself and I'm praying for time so I could actually sit down and begin to answer it. For me, I'm also a very studious type of person. I like to study it. I really enjoy studying. I like learning new things. I'm at my happiest when I'm in front of my books and trying to figure out new things. So books are really important to me. So do you have a whole bunch of books that are important to you as well? I do have a couple of books that I, I thoroughly enjoy. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed um, engaging with Roger Martin. I mean, I, I think Roger Martin opened my eyes to new ways of thinking about strategy and about um, organizational design, about um, about where we are and, and about thinking about concretizing vision rather. I, Roger Martin opened new ways for me to think about concretizing vision than I ever had before. There is a a book uh, that's not this. Uh, in addition to that, there is a book by, and I shoot, I forgot his, the, the 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 name of the author, but it's a book entitled The Precariat, um, or The Rise of the Precariat, and it's a fascinating book because it was written a couple of years ago. It's probably written, it's probably about um, eight, nine, ten years old, but it is a book that speaks about um, it's a book that speaks about the it's about class, about um, socioeconomic class, and it starts off by saying that we under from from the Marxist um, from the Marxist discussion around class, we talk about a a bourgeoisie and a proletariat and a petty bourgeoisie with your petty bourgeoisie largely um, essentially your middle class that sits between your bourgeoisie and your with your bourgeoisie as the owners of the means of production, your classic Marxism. And the proletariat being your your working class, the people that work in order to produce, and your petty bourgeoisie being that class in the middle, that uh, the class of professionals and managers, etc., that um, that that in, that ensure the, the the coordination and management of that proletariat to produce the wealth for the bourgeoisie. In a nutshell, you know, uh, oversimplification. So. What he writes about is the emergence of what he calls a precariat, which is an addition, a new class. And the precariat arises out of the particular social conditions that we, social, social conditions that we're living in now, with the rise of technology, the fourth industrial revolution, etc. And the, the fact that people are now, so, so people are now becoming, um, increasingly expendable. So that, and that, that petty bourgeoisie, in particular, is becoming increasingly expendable. So your your petty bourgeoisie were the people that were that solid middle class that had a job for life. They could uh, they 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 could afford to have homes and cars and bonds and etc. And put their children through universities, um, and 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 just perpetuate themselves. That petty bourgeoisie now is sinking further and further into that into the working class, because the work that they're doing is um, increasingly becoming um, less, less, um, stable, less secure, 
um, and more precarious. And the, the, the concept of the precarious comes from the increasing precariousness of the work situation. So you will find, for example, just recently in the last few weeks, the NASPES has um, retrenched um, most of its editors and journalists and writers. So there's a large number. You go to NASPES, you know, if you can look at NASPES in the news, you'll see they've retrenched most of the editors and writers, etc. And they're now contracting them in, the same people. So they say, you are retrenched, you no longer work for NASPES. So NASPES no longer carries them as an expense on their books. But you have to produce the same magazines that we that you've been producing while you were working for us for the last 15, 20, 30 years, except that you're working on a contract. When we don't like you, we terminate your contract and you move on. And we don't like, if we don't like your writers, um, if you, and, and we don't know, we no longer employ your writers. You, the editor, you have to employ the writers in your structure and the risk and the cost of carrying those writers and the cost of their expenses then gets borne by you, not by me. So, um, that's one example, but that example is being that example is being replicated across industries, from one industry to another. So you have this increasing, you have an increasing precariousness of work, um, and you have a, a growing disparity between rich and poor. Um, and and so so that's so so the reason that I read that I I, I consider that to be like a seminal work is because it speaks about a future that is emerging and that we be, that we seeing and feeling and experiencing today. So that's an interesting book for me. Okay, I'll go have a look for it. Okay. What excites you about the future? What are you really looking forward to experiencing in your lifetime? Top of mind is seeing my daughter grow up to become whatever she wants to become in. I um so that's probably that's top of mind. I mean, if there's anything that excites me about the future, it is my daughter. Um, and she wants to study medicine. She's in matric now, wants to study medicine. Um, she's doing matric in probably the toughest matric year ever seen on the, in, in the history of matric years. And she's actually doing pretty well in spite of that. So that is probably top of mind. Uh, what I would love to see though, what excites me, there's an opportunity that emerges out of the crisis that we're in, this pandemic that we're in, and the fact that all of us have been forced to take a number of steps backward and say, how do we create a world that we can live in now? Because that's essentially the question everybody's asking, which is a wonderful question to ask. And I'm hoping that the answer to that question is a world in which we create a greater distribu distribution of the, the wealth that we're able to generate in order to improve the quality of life of people across the board. And for me, that is the most exciting thing that we could possibly do and the most interesting thing that could possibly happen. An idea that I came up with a week ago to, to start cooperative farming with um, to build a closed community. We, we now have people that buy um, property on, on like estates um, in the winelands and they, they're generally people that are comfortably middle class or upper middle class and they get to share, they get to live on a farm in these wonderful estates and, and experience the joy of living on a farm without necessarily the pain of working that farm. Um, they get to work their professional lives. Now I'm thinking 
that it would be wonderful if we were able to build a notion of cooperative living. And one idea that I have is the farm, where instead of having created an estate, but a, an estate of people that actually work the farm, and that they, they, they create an estate in which on that farm you also have a grocery store of some sort so that your supply of of the basic needs can can come from the farm onto the farm you you create an ecosystem a an ecosystem that survives and thrives um off the back of their own labors so i don't know how i'm going to, to materialize that but that is a project that i've started researching now by the way i've i started researching i've been looking for information on how to do this i've started to hear about permaculture i have no idea what it is yet but I'm hoping that within the next three months, I will be able to go to somebody who is somebody that's wealthy enough and with a good heart to say, look, this is an idea. How do we move this thing forward? So that's for me personally, that's the most that's exciting. So if there's one thing people should know, like one message you'd like to put out there in the world, what is that message? There's one thing I'd like people to believe is that we need to, in order for us to live our best lives, we have to create the best lives for those around us because we don't live our best lives in isolation. I think that's a beautiful message. Yeah, so thank you very much for speaking to me this morning and making time available and just telling me your fascinating life story. It's just been amazing talking to you. Thank you. Well, thanks for inviting me into into this discussion, this conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it, actually, um, and made me think about my life a little bit. And so, good luck with it, and that's it for me. Thank you, and goodbye. Thanks for listening to another episode of Unchange. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.